different generate a ministry of River City Church changing the world for Jesus one person at a time. If you're here, you're alive, and you're looking forward to spring break, give me a whoop. Like 15 of you. Okay, so anyway, super glad that you guys are here. My name is Sam. I'm the college ministry director at uh, River City Church. And uh, it's, it's time for, it's that time of the night. It's time for our theological question of the week. Drum roll, please. Oh, okay, here we go. Dear regenerate, if God is sovereign, then why would he regret something he did? Question mark. Like in 1 Samuel 15, it says the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. Ooh, this is a good one. Okay, uh, I have two minutes to answer the question based on my own theological training and what the Bible says. So take everything I say with a grain of salt starting right now. Ah, okay, it's already started. Okay, here we go. If God is sovereign. Okay, so the question is what do we mean by sovereignty, right? If God is sovereign, right? This is an if-then statement. So we have to look at the protests before we can figure out what the, what the, what the apostasy says. So uh, first of all, is God sovereign? Yes. Overall, people, times, places, and events. That means, is God in control? Yes or no? And the answer is yes. God is in control of all things. That's what the Bible teaches. So why would he regret something he did? Like, oh, no, I made an accident, like Saul becoming king. I, this is a tough, honestly, this is a tough question, and I'm going to be straight with you. I'm not going to be able to come up with a great answer for it. But what I do know is this, that God, although he is immutable, that means he doesn't change, right? For Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't mean... Uh, that God, uh, and neither does God make mistakes. He's not a man he, uh, who makes errors and things like that. He's not a human being who makes errors like, oh my gosh, I accidentally, you know, made a giraffe. Like I was trying to make a horse, you know, like when, in the beginning or something like that. God doesn't do that. But it is clear that God has a desired will for us that sometimes in whatever mystery there is between God's sovereignty and our, and our decisions that we make, God allows us sometimes to depart from his plans so that, I, I believe that it's so that he can draw us back into relationship with him. However, some people die in their sins apart from that. Some people will choose to just choose to pursue foolishness. Saul is a good example of this. God gives him opportunity after opportunity, and it breaks God's heart. This is referring, the regret, I think, more than anything, is referring to God's emotions. How does he feel? Even if he knows the end game is you're going to make a bad decision, does that negate the fact that God feels bad when you do it? No, it doesn't. And often God changing his mind. More often than not, it's about him looking for an excuse to show grace. So when God tells Moses, I'm going to kill the Israelites because they're all sinning against me. And Moses is like, wait, don't do it. It says that God changed his mind. And I believe that is the thing. God is always changing his mind in order to show us what grace looks like. Boom, the end. Woo! I think I barely made it. <laughs> okay. All right. Nice, nice. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this off now for a second. What? I leave it on for the video and then I take it off for <laughs> the video's gone. That way nobody can trace it back to my face. <laughs> he answered that wrong. Oh, it wasn't Sam Mains, though, because his face wasn't showing. Anyway, um, we'll never know. Okay, I got a question for you guys tonight. Are you hungry? Yeah. Okay, some, some of you guys are like, yeah, yes. You're, you're like, some of you guys are fresh out of high school, and you're like, absolutely, all the time, yes. And then some of you guys are not fresh out of high school, and you're still like, absolutely, all the time, yes, right? Uh, if you're like me, I'm like, yeah. I, if you ask me, if I, am I, are you ready to eat, Sam? At any point, I will be like, yes, I am ready to eat. You're like, you just ate a four-course meal. I know. Bring on the next thing, okay? I'm a hobbit at heart. I'm all about breakfast, second breakfast, 11s, lunch, luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. Like, bring them all. All the meals. I will have them, okay? If it's good food, I'm, I'm down with it. Now, how many guys, uh, raise your hand if this is you. Did you... Uh, 
Did, who here had a parent who, uh, okay, good. Uh, no. <laughs> Stop there. How many of you had a parent? Um, uh, there's, uh, how many of you guys had a parent who was kind of granola? You know, you have a granola parent who's like, yeah, you can only have like whole wheat, yeah, or you can only, yeah, you can only have certain, you gotta have healthy foods for dinner. They'll say, don't eat ice cream before dinner, it'll spoil your appetite, right? Some of you guys like ice cream that I'm having. <laughs> it'll spoil the ice cream I'm having for dinner? Like, I don't know, like, okay, some of you guys, so some of you guys, anybody have like this, like, I have no idea what the context is for this, okay? So, uh, just to be straight, I don't know what the context is for a last parent who lets you just like eat whatever you want. My parents were like that, okay? One of the things I was raised on was oatmeal. Anybody eat oatmeal? Like, grow, okay, oh, look at all the hands going up. A lot of oatmeal people, okay. So I ate oatmeal. But not only did I eat oatmeal, I ate German oatmeal, which means it has to be as plain as possible. It must be only for efficiency. The Germans, the old, my, 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 my mom is, is, is full-blooded German. It's, I think it was something on the German side of the family. It's like, we are efficient. We eat things so that we can be strong and healthy, so you can have strong bones and strong muscles. You know, and uh, so you, you are only going to eat, you know, and it even sounds harsher in German, right? So like, it's like when you eat oatmeal, it's like, oh, it's oatmeal. It sounds harmless. But in German, it's half a fucking pie. And you're like... We're going to have brai for breakfast. Every day is brai, 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 every day. And so you're like, wow. Uh, anyway, I, I ate brai every day growing up. Every day. And uh, nowadays, I look back and I'm like, I hate brai. I hate oatmeal. I hate it. It was just plain oatmeal. And, and, and maybe if you're lucky, you got some brown sugar or, or, or some cinnamon or something. Which, and actually, looking back, I recently had some oatmeal. And I was like, you know, this isn't half bad. But I hadn't eaten it in like 10 years because... <laughs> Uh, it has been, like, it was one of those things where it's like, we always ate it. And my, my parents would never let us eat junk food, right? So one weekend, my, my parents go out. I, I got two brothers, an older one and a younger one. And, and my parents go out for the weekend. I forget where they're going, some date or something like that. And, and we were in high school, and so what's the first thing that we did? Like, this is, I'm confessing to you guys, this was my rebellious stage. Okay? This is my rebellion. Okay? We went, instead of eating pie morning and maybe having a whole wheat sandwich for lunch we went to the store we bought ourselves some fruity pebbles we got some lucky charms we got some chocolate milk y'all and we had a gallon of it and we drank every drop of that gallon that day like by saturday evening it was gone because we did not want our, our parents were returning on Sunday. We wanted no sign of all of the sugar and the simple carbohydrates that we had ingested that were almost certainly going to shorten our lifespan. We did not want our parents to know because they were kind of granola like that. And so uh, the question is, I think a lot of times when we ask the question, are you hungry? The real question is, what are you hungry for? Right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm always hungry, but am I always hungry for the right things? Am I hungry for something that my body needs, right? Uh, so currently my wife, Jamie, is pregnant. Um, praise God. We're just super excited about it. Um, and one of, those things, one of the things about this and, uh, is when you're pregnant, um, you, you get weird cravings sometimes. And one of the interesting things we've learned is that, like, hey, if Jamie has like a craving, like, oh my gosh, I super need all-dressed chips like right now, that means more than likely her body is lacking some kind of vitamin or mineral that she needs in order to, to give nutritional uh, sustenance to our child, which is growing inside of her, right? And so when, when you have a hunger for something, especially when you're pregnant, you're, it's like a woman is keenly aware of what I need, when I need it. 
which is why Jamie one time woke me up in the middle of the night, literally. It's like one in the morning, she wakes me up and she's like, babe. I'm like, yeah, she's like, I really. This was not recent. This is our, for our, our, our last child. This was when she was pregnant with Lainey. She's like, I really, really, you know, those ruffles? This is like two in the morning, okay? So I barely wake. Yeah, babe. Do you know those ruffles? Like sour cream and cheddar ruffles? Yeah. Not the big bag, like the small one. No, it's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, babe, I know what you're talking about. I really want one right now. And I was like, okay, yeah, for sure, for sure. <clears throat> you know, and then I just immediately went to sleep, right? And, uh, and so, but was it, and actually, we never, we never actually got to like fulfill that craving. So like, when she got pregnant with her, with our current uh, daughter, I gave her, uh, I gave her a bag of of the rolls, <laughs> cheddar and sour cream, just to make up for it. When you're hungry, you gotta be hungry for the right thing sometimes. And we're gonna be in Amos chapter eight, and we're gonna be talking about the idea of hunger. The question is, are you hungry for the right things? Turn to somebody and say, Are you hungry? Are you hungry? Yeah. We're going to be <laughs> yes, can we please get done right now? Let's skip all this and go to Applebee's now. Okay. Are you hungry? We're going to be in Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 14. And, uh, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to ask this, and to be, begin with, we're going to be in another passage where Amos is going to be talking about the judgment of God. Everybody's like, yay, God's judgment, my favorite. You know, like nobody's really excited about the wrath of God, right? Uh, but this is actually something that's really good. And actually, as we read Amos chapter 8 tonight, we're going to ask some key questions of the text. And the first one is this. Not are you hungry, but rather, why is it hard to read the prophets? I'm not exactly hungry for reading about God's wrath. When I, when I get spiritually hungry, quote unquote, I want to read something that makes me feel good. I want to read something that makes me feel good right now about my life. I want to feel therapy. When I read the Bible, right? This is the way that a lot of us Christians operate. And so we, why is it so hard to, to read the prophets? And what, why is the message of the prophets like Amos so hard for the affluent to stomach? Of course, living here in the United States, we have to acknowledge that we live in one of the richest, wealthiest countries in the world. If you are here in this room, and uh, whether you are gainfully employed or looking for employment, or whether you are going to college, you are among the top I think it's like top 5% of the richest people in the entire world. There are billions of people who live well below the poverty line around the world. And we here are, we, we live in an affluent society. We do. We have to acknowledge that, right? And so why is the message of the prophets like Amos so hard for the affluent to stomach? Well, remember just before this passage, what Amos was talking about. I don't know if you recall from last week. Amos had an image of summer fruit, right? There was a basket of summer fruit that was being gathered up. A basket. And, and in this, the, in this uh, basket, there may, it may very well have been figs. He sees this image that God gives him. Perhaps it was figs, which is something that Amos would have been familiar with as a vine dresser. Or maybe it was grapes. But this, what's interesting is that if you look at it as grape gathering, which it more than likely is, uh, that, that instantly gives us the image that something is being gathered in order to be pressed, right? The wine is be, uh, the, in order to create wine. This was something that was very common in the ancient Near East. So you gather up grapes so that they could be crushed in a wine press by people with their bare feet. Don't think about people's bare feet and wine. You know, like, I don't want to think about wine, like anything that I'm drinking being in anybody's foot. Anyway, um, but that was the way that they would do it, is you would crush the grapes, right? And then out would flow the wine. But often, wine, especially in the Old Testament, is used as an image of God's wrath, where it gets poured out. You look at places like Obadiah 16, 
where he says, uh, as he, where he's prophesying against Edom, and the prophet Obadiah says, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. Um, and then uh, there's this sort of like staggering drunkenness that's associated with the wrath of God. Why is that? Because the wrath of God be poured out. God's anger towards sin plays out in, in what looks like foolishness, right? Staggering about, drunk, foolish, unaware of what's going on. And so the wrath of God gets poured out. And so when Amos sees the image of this summer fruit being gathered up, he's going, the wrath of God is coming. And we don't know what to do with this kind of image, right? And so in this next passage in Amos chapter 8, he's going to unpack that for us. But why is it so hard? Well, it's often, because wine is an image of God's wrath, we have to ask, why is this wrath coming? And how do we actually deal with it going forward? Because if you're like most people in, in most Christians in this country, or even if you're, if you're not a Christian and you have no idea what the Bible is about, you might read this and be like, uh, what's about to come, what I'm about to read is going to sound really harsh. But let's unpack this together and try to understand why it's so difficult for this, uh, for us to unpack this. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with hunger? We'll get there in a minute. So everybody, can we, can we stand together? Let's read the Word of God together. We're going to be in Amos chapter 8. Looking at verses 4 through 14. Let's all read this out loud together, though. Let's see the word of God. Let's hear the word of God. Let's speak the word of God all at the same time. So the words will be up here on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 14. So everybody on three. One, two, three. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone who mourns who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, to be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this moment, into this place. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what this means. Help us to understand why is it so hard for us to stomach the words of the Lord. And God, help us to understand what it really means to be hungry for the right things. I pray that you would stir something up in us tonight, a hunger for the right things. So, Lord Jesus, let my words be your words tonight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody who trusts in Jesus said, Amen. 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 So, I've seen. Why is it so hard to read these? 
Now, first of all, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Okay, so he just sees the image of summer fruit, and sure enough, we just read it. Amos sees pictures and predictions of God's coming wrath. God is not happy with the people of Israel. Now you might go, okay, what, what's, what's wrong with this? Well, God had called the nation of Israel to be his people. He wanted them to set an example for what his nature was like. Not only that, but he had set these people aside in a particular place in order to fulfill a particular promise. He had told their ancestor Abraham that he was going to bless the world through their offspring. So everything that God speaks, everything that God does in the Old Testament is designed to prepare the way for Jesus who came at the beginning of the New Testament. So you have to read the Old Testament through this lens, understanding that God is preparing his people, right? But at the same time, we also have to realize the very distinct similarities between where people were then and where we are now. These are people in relationship to Yahweh, to the creator God. If you believe in Jesus today, you are in relationship with Yahweh, with the Creator God. You are connected to Him. His Spirit lives in you because He has washed away all of your sins. And He is renewing you and transforming you day by day from one glory to the next into the image of His Son, Jesus. Somebody got to shout amen on that if that's you. Because you know what? Jesus is in your life. He is working in and through you to accomplish His purposes in you. But sometimes the accomplishment of those purposes doesn't look like what we want it to look like. Why is it so hard to read the prophets? Has anybody ever read any of the other prophets in the Old Testament? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, yeah, Lamentations. Jer you know, those are, those are really fun books, right? Hosea, Amos, uh, Joel, Daniel. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Amos is part of what they call, Hebrew scholars call the Twelve. That is the Twelve Minor Prophets who uh, follow after Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And uh, so the 12 minor prophets, uh, often a lot of them are filled with these images that are very, very vivid. And it's because the prophets, like Amos, are trying to get the attention of the people of God, right? But what's really interesting is it's hard to juxtapose that into our culture now, into our time now. And I think the first reason is very simple. And this is the first one. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to admit our guilt or our shame. We don't want to admit our guilt or our shame. One of the things that's really interesting, I, was, I, I read a book recently um, by Latasha Morrison called Be the Bridge. Amazing book, um, very challenging, um, and it's about racial reconciliation, the hard work of actually um, meeting with people of other races and learning what it takes to be unified and in order to make restoration, restore relationships that have been broken over time. One of the things that was really interesting, she noted in the book that, uh, I think it was in 2008, the government of Canada officially apologized uh, to the Native American population in Canada for the uh, resident, what were called residential schools. The residential schools were where uh, Native kids would be brought in and they would be stripped of their culture, their hair would be cut, they, their clothing would be taken, their, their, uh, their Native clothing would be taken away, their language would be taken away, all of those things would be taken away and stripped from them in order that they would basically stop being natives and become like white European settlers. Now, the same thing happened in America, in fact, on a much larger scale. We'll get to that in a second. The government of Canada in, 2000, in 2008, the Prime Minister of Canada actually issued a powerful uh, speech where he actually officially apologized to the Native American population within Canada and said, we participated in that. Would you, and, and this is our step forward to try to achieve, to try to grow in forgiveness and reconciliation. But in our country, that, although the same exact practices happen, 
It has, nothing has ever been said by our government, ever, any kind of apology. No kind of apology was ever issued. Why is that? I think in our culture, we don't want to admit guilt, and we don't want, don't want to admit shame, right? And now look at this. The people of Israel, what are they guilty of? Look at verses 4. He says, you trample on the needy, and you bring the poor of the land to an end. Now, what does that mean? Well, the, to an end, the, the word there is, uh, is uh, uh, shavit, or shavit, which actually is the same word for, um, that, the same root for Shabbat, Sabbath, rest. It's the word used in Genesis 2-2 when God rested from his creation. And you're like, oh, so they gave the people, poor people a day off. That's not a bad idea. You know, like, no, actually what it's saying is like it means to cease, to end. God stopped working, Shabbat. And so he's saying, you have brought the poor, the, the people who are in this, in this land who are struggling, you are trying to bring them to an end. Not just bring their way of life to an end. You don't want to hear them. You don't want to acknowledge them. So you're trying to snuff them out. And then he says, when, and then listen to this. They're plotting, right? They're plotting to actually wreck people economically. They're like, when will the new moon be over? That would be sell grain. The new moon was a, was a holiday, so you couldn't sell or, or buy or sell. So, and when's the Sabbath going to be over? So we can offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. Now, those are measurements, right? And deal deceitfully with false balances. So if you were like Amos, and you're a fig picker, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? <laughs> a fig picker. Uh, anyway, suppose you're a fig picker, like Amos. You, you pick all your figs. You put all your pig figs in a pig fig basket. You take the pig fig basket to the pig fig basket market, and then you go to the pig fig basket guy at the pig fig basket market, and then, or fig, fig, yeah, anyway. Uh, so you, the picked figs, he grabs them, and then he would weigh them, and based on how much they weigh, he would give you X amount of dollars, or, you know, I don't know what you call them in ancient Israel. Dollarim, I don't know. But uh, there's, so they, they would give you the certain amount of money. However, if the scales were weighted in a certain way, you could rip people off. It's like, I just gave you like 10 pounds of figs. Ah, well, 10 pounds, and I thought that got me $10. Ah, well, prices changed. Look at the scale. I can't do anything about it. So people would do that deceitfully in order to, to extract money, right? So there's this greed that is driving the culture of Israel, and it's completely antithetical to who God is. And so there's a, the problem is that a lot of people don't real. and when you look at Old Testament law, Leviticus 25, 39, uh, indicated that if a person was in such a position that they could not pay uh, for something. So suppose Amos the fig picker. He goes and he, he drops off his fruit. He doesn't get enough money for it. So no matter how much his, his land produces, he's in the red economically, right? He can't pay for the things he needs to keep his family alive. So what would you do? Well, according to Leviticus 25, you would go to a rich, affluent person and you would say, hey, I need a loan. And if you couldn't pay on the loan, if you defaulted on the loan, then you would enter into indentured servitude and you would become that person's slave until such time that the value of the loan was paid off. All my economic people tracking with me? Okay, this is kind of old school. We're talking about figs and stuff, but it's still the same as like, you know, 401k. Anyway, um, not really, but anyway. Um, so this is the thing. They were intentionally trying to put people in a position, listen, to enslave them. Trying to put people in a position to enslave them. This is clear from the context. And Amos is telling them that God is not okay with it. God is not okay with injustice. God is not okay with the downtrodden being further trodden. The Israelites were basically plotting usury. Usury of the poor. So those who had were taken from those who had not. And some of you guys are going, well, this sounds like socialism. No, this is about generosity. 
This is, this is not about a, an economic system even or a political system. It's about generosity and it's about who God is. And he's saying you guys are living completely antithetical to that. But they don't want to face up to any of it. It's clear. We don't know what to do when we know that we're doing something evil or we know that our culture is responsible for something evil. Maybe it was something that happened in the past. Maybe it's something that's happening now. We don't want to acknowledge it because we honestly don't know what to do. So we just smile, say everything's good, take nice snap, like nice pictures for our Snapchat and Facebook, say that we're fine, and then go to therapy and think that we'll be fun, like live a good life. You know what I mean? Something's wrong. Something's wrong in the church when, when we're not able to acknowledge our shame and our guilt. Did you know the first step towards God? A lot of times, the first step is to recognize that you are guilty or you are ashamed. Oftentimes, the good news starts with bad news. The bad news is you screwed up. You done messed up, eh, Aaron. You got to go to God and make things right with him. Here's the second thing that makes it hard to read this. We don't know what to do with the wrath of God. We don't. It makes us uncomfortable. And I think a lot of that is because just our cultural lens is so skewed. If you are an ancient per- if you're a person living in the ancient Near East, if you struggle with poverty on the daily, and you read this, and especially when you're at the bottom of the of the totem pole, as it were, and those who are uh, those who are affluent and rich are up at the top, and you, no matter how hard you try, there is no such thing as the American dream. The Israel dream is you live a peasant, you die a peasant. That's it. Like it's not like, hey man, you could if you got the right degree, man, you could you could move from fig picker to like king. It's like that's not happening, bro. Like I am going to live a fig, fig picker. Now I'm going to die a fig picker. Okay, that's the way that it goes, right? And so, but we don't know what to do with the wrath of God. Look at this. In verses 7 through 10, God's righteous judgment actually draws a comparison with his judgment of Egypt. So we see the land trembling, like the Nile. He, he, he instantly mentions the Nile there. He talks about darkness. He talks about mourning. He talks about, and then he talks about famine, which we're really going to drill into in a second. Now you might go, wow, those are really terrible things, right? Morning, famine, ah, yeah, that is bad. But also, if you're an ancient Israelite, you're reading this, what's the first story that comes to mind? When you hear Nile River, darkness, famine, morning, what are you thinking of? You're thinking of Moses. You're thinking of the deliverance from Egypt. You're thinking about those evil people that enslaved us. Those people received the wrath of God, and we're like, yeah, and we get all patriotic and Sing songs about how great Israel is. And yeah, he threw the horse and the rider in the seed and the, the, the man. I don't know. It's like my fiddler on the roof number. If I was a rich man. Um, so that's like the big deal, right? You think about Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. But then the tables return. Amos is using that same language against Israel. And he's saying, this is the thing that's going to happen to you. Sorry, Charles. I'm going to be pointing <laughs> right at you, but kind of. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> This is the thing that's going to happen to you. This is happening to my people, God is saying. And we don't know what to do with this. And I think honestly because we don't deal with indignation. Not many of us don't deal with indignation on a regular basis. We don't deal with frustration on a daily basis. Not many of us, especially now, if you're in a position like me, I'm a white male. Uh, I'm not going to experience indignation on a daily basis because of my gender. I'm not going to experience indignation on account of my race. Uh, I'm not going to experience indignation on account of my economic status because I'm, I'm doing okay and I'm, 
They're, they're, I'm not going to experience a daily frustration with the way that things are. But if you're a person who's dealing with that, to hear that God's wrath is coming and that he's going to level the playing field and he's going to make things right again, that makes you go, yes! Yes! That's what I want. That's what I need. I need righteousness to flow like it ever... Like I, want, I want justice to flow like a stream across this land. I want God just to... There's a part of me that just makes wants me to go, God, just take them all out and start over again, Right? And in the same way, when we look at the church today, there are some, we have to acknowledge that there, there has to be some people who look at the way that, that, that God's people have been interacting with the world and go, something's got to change. See, a yearning for justice is built into the heart of human beings. And when we shut that, and a lot of us shut that down because we have the things that we need to feel good enough to get by. But here's the big thing. This is, this is actually, so he talks about all these things happening. And immediately now, if you're affluent and you're thinking, oh man, I hope this never, I hope this never happens to me, right? I remember growing, uh, growing up, I went to a youth group where, uh, I remember one time our youth leader asked, like what, um, like, what do you want to happen in your life? Like, what's like your big dream in life? And I remember there was this one girl who shared what was basically like everybody's dream. She's like, I want to I wanna get married and like want to have, I want to like travel for like two or three years or something like that, you know, maybe 10 years, I don't know. And then I'll have, and then I want to have kids, like 2.5 kids, white picket fence, want to have a nice life and a suburban, I don't know if that was cool back then and not cool now, but it's like, I want to have, I want to have a nice car, want to have a nice house, want to have kids, want to have a husband. And then I just want Jesus to come back. And then I just like want to be raptured and stuff and like not have, basically, her whole thing was devoid of any hardship at all. And, I was, and a part of me now, like looking back, I'm like, wow, but that's it, isn't it? Like a pain-free life is the American dream. A pain-free life. But for those who have suffered pain, who already know that life isn't pain-free, justice and wrath from God makes a lot more sense. And suddenly you begin to realize, you know what? God's right to be angry with us. Frankly, a lot of us, we don't know what to do with the prophets because we simply don't get it because we don't experience that. And here's the bottom line. He says this. He says there's going to be trembling, there's going to be darkness, there's going to be mourning and famine. But then pay close attention here. Look at verse uh, 11. He says, he said, I'm going to turn your feasts into mourning. I'll your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. That was a sign of mourning back then. You'd shave your head. I'll make it like mourning for an only son at the end, and at the end of it like a bitter day. If you had one son in Hebrew culture and you lost that son, that meant your entire legacy was tarnished. It was, it was going to have to, you know, your property was going to be divided up among whoever was the closest related male. There was going to be all kinds of infighting. It was going to destroy your legacy. So he's saying, you're going to mourn like an only son was lost. And we're all like, oh my gosh, these are all terrible. But what we're focused on is the natural, right? But look what's happening at the supernatural or spiritual level. Look at this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. This is terrifying. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You will not be able to hear my voice, God says through the prophet. This is going to be a famine of the worst degree. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They will not find it. And that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Even the, even the people who are supposed to be in the prime of their life will be fainting. 
Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria as a symbol of the, of the idolatrous uh, golden calf that was sitting in this town of Samaria. And they'd say, as your God lives, O Dan. There was two golden calves that King Jeroboam had set up, one in, in, uh, one in Bethel in the south and one in Dan in the north. And he's saying, you people who, are, who have these idols, you are going to fall and never rise again. So what's interesting is that Amos spends all this time talking about these natural things that are going to happen. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But the real terror is not that, but rather the famine that happens at a spiritual level. This is the third point. We're hungry for the wrong things. We're hungry for the wrong things. See, you and I, we're hungry for the spiritual sugar. We're hungry for the, we're hungry for the spiritual uh, saturated fats. We're hungry for the, for the spiritual feel-good comfort food, right? We're hungry for the spiritual sweets. But how many times do, we, do you just need to wake up and eat some pie once in a while, spiritually speaking? What is it that, something that sticks to your ribs, something that gives you spiritual nutrition, what is that thing? See, most of us are terrified of the natural consequences of sin because of our Western mindset, which is on reason and physical evidence. So when we look at things like losing things, we're like, oh my gosh, no! Like, the last thing we want to lose is like, uh, like what if churches lose their tax-free status? And what if, my, what if my retirement doesn't pan out? And what if I don't get Social Security? Or like, like we're, we're worried about the future and like what we're going to have. Rather than what we're going to, who we're going to hear, or who we're going to experience. See, we're hungry for the wrong things. The greatest tragedy in this chapter, by far, is this: a lack of the Word of God. And actually, there's a number of manuscripts there. In verse, uh, I think it's verse 12. There, he says, uh, "Yeah, they shall wander." Uh, sorry. Sorry, verse 11, he says, there's not going to be a fan of bread, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Multiple translations, I believe, actually have a stronger translation and just re- removing words. And actually, the word there is just a word. A lack of the word of a word from God. You know how much you crave a word from God. This generation, you don't need more advice. You don't need more people telling you the right things to do. You don't need people saying, do this, do that. You don't need more people to give you good therapy, to make you feel like therapeutic uh, spirituality, to make you feel good about yourself. You don't need more people to comfort you. You don't need all those things. What you need is a word from God. We need a word from God desperately in this time. It is clear that the church has been confused. It is clear that our culture is confused. And there is no clarity because there is no word from God that we're hearing. So many times we're missing it. We're missing the word that is in due season. Something that is like that it, 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 something that actually fits the time in which we are living. We're not like the man of Manessa who understood the times. We are not aware spiritually of what's happening because we aren't seeking a word from God because we settle for the sugar. You settle for the sugar. You settle for the stuff that gives you a temporary high and you're not willing to ingest the nutrition of God's word. You're not willing to get deep with God. What's terrifying is the literal interpretation of this because what he's saying here is this, that there's going to be a time coming when you will not hear from God. The heavens will be shut and I will stop speaking to you. And this actually was predicting a 400 year period where no one would hear from God. Think about this. The United States of America, how old is it? Somebody do math for me. 
Okay, what? <laughs> okay, when was this? Okay, suppose 1776. You count back that far. How many years has that been? 300? Maybe? 280. At best, right? Okay, I don't know. We don't have any math people in here, do we? <laughs> 250. Okay, 250. Okay, there we go. 250, yeah. So imagine that for 200 years or 150 years before the United States was even a nation, established as a nation, or before the Declaration of Independence was written. For 200 years before that, we haven't heard from God since then. Imagine that. God has not spoken. He has been silent. There has been no man or woman of God to speak to us, to guide us, to give us direction. All we've had is what's been written, and we're trying to live by it. 400 years of silence is what God predicted through the prophet Amos. And it actually happened. You read the Apocrypha, the books that happen between the Old and New Testament, there's a clear lack of discernment as to what God is actually saying because he spoke authoritatively up until uh, the prophet Malachi, and then it was just like, boom, done. Why? Because in the end, look at it, he says, he, he gives you the why. He says, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, they will fall. What's the end result? What does God want? He wants idolatry to die. This is God's end game. He wants to kill your idols. And he will do whatever it takes to do that. I don't want you to walk out of here and think that I'm going to walk through life just tiptoeing through the tulips and still live with the idols in my heart. God does not take second place. He doesn't. Because he is worth first place in every respect, in every regard. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who is above all things. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He deserves your worship. The idols, the sugar, the car, the degree, the marriage, the kids, the retirement, the this, the that, the travel, the Instagram, the, the TikTokable vacation, those things are sugar. Those are just the icing on top of the cake. What God wants is he wants to drill down deep and go, where's the nutrients? I have a word for you that is going to bring you life if you'll latch into me and just get rid of the idols, the things that you have served for so long. Will you shed those things so that I can be the one that gives you life and nutrition? And can I be the one that gives you strength instead of your hoping in other things? See, we're hungry for the wrong things. God's desire, God desired hunger for himself, not hunger for anything else. You know, the, the, the Pharisees get a bad rap in the, in the New Testament. You ever read, anybody ever like read one of the Gospels, one of the stories of Jesus? You read the Pharisees, you're like, those guys suck. Look at them, like, walking around in their like, hats and robes and going, well, the law says this doesn't matter. You know? And you're like, those guys are jerks, you know? But you know what I realized, though? I, when, I was kind of stud- when I studied the Bible, I realized after 400 years of silence, i got to hand it to the Pharisees. They were doing their best in a time when God was not speaking to hold true to the law. They believed that in order for the Messiah to come, we've got to get true to the law. The problem that Amos is addressing, we need to address that. So how do we do it? Strict obedience. We have to obey every single thing. We have to tithe a tenth of our dill and our cumin. And we have to do all, we have to make lengthy prayers. We need, to, we, need to, we need to wear scripture literally on our heads so that way we can remember it better somehow. Uh, like those, are, those are the things we have to do. But you've got to hand it uh, to the people of Israel because by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, you don't see idolatry. Not that kind anyway. Not the golden calf kind. Not the Canaanite God, Baal, Ashtaroth kind of stuff that we see in the Old Testament. It's gone. That 400 years of silence worked. 
So when the Messiah showed up, they were ready to receive him. And they still rejected him. But still. <laughs> they should have been. <laughs> That's the point. See, we're hungry for the wrong things. You know, this is why in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is far easier to receive and to understand God's word and God's kingdom when you're poor in spirit. And the people that Amos is speaking to are affluent. They're rich in spirit. They have the things that they want that make them comfortable, so they're okay with it. But God wants to destroy those idols. See, that image of wine being pressed out, the image of the summer fruit, that wrath of God is a sure thing. You can read about it in Revelation 19.15, that the wrath of God is surely going to come. And a hunger for the things of this world is to hunger for wine instead of hungering for food. Nothing natural can ever satisfy spiritual hunger. And here's the danger. St. Bernard of Clairvaux put it this way. Ancient Catholic guy. What we love, we shall grow to resemble. What we love, we shall grow to resemble. See, in the end, he said this. He's like, you are going to mourn he said, there's going to be a time of silence. And before that, he's, and just before that, what did he say? I want, I want to zoom in on this real quick because he says this. Look at, look at verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 10. He says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth and every waste and baldness on every head. And he clarifies later. It's not because you're going to lose all the economic stuff. It's not because you're going to lose the money. It's because you're going to lose me. You're going to lose my voice. And then listen to this. He says, I'll make it like the mourning of an only son. I will make it like the morning of an only son. And what do we know from Scripture? Is that years later, 700 years after Amos spoke, God did send his only son. And he, this is the gospel, guys, is that even though the people of Israel deserved his judgment, even though we are the ones who deserved a bitter day of death that felt like we were losing a son, instead it was God who lost his. He lost his boy, and we got to keep ours. He will pay the price. He absorbed the wrath. He absorbed the judgment. And the only reason he was quiet for 400 years was so that when the word that John spoke of, the word who was God came, that people would be able to hear it in silence. We're hungry for the wrong things. So here's the questions tonight. What was confusing about this passage? Where do you see the gospel in this passage? And here's the big one I wanted to talk about. What are you hungry for in life? What are you hungry for? 